The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Well, I have with me here something that's a very rare commodity on a Sunday. Uh, so I'm holding in my hand something, I mean, if there was a black market, you could probably get some good money for this. This is a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich that I purchased yesterday. Don't worry, I refrigerated it. Uh, this is a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, um, that I brought with me in case I get hungry at any point during the message. That was a joke. No, uh, this is, uh, gonna serve as just our way of, uh, opening up our dialogue today. So this is a real, it's not a prop, this is an actual chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A, and you know, you can order this sandwich at Chick-fil-A so many different ways. Uh, in fact, there's a deluxe option you can get with like lettuce, tomato, cheese, any deluxe people, you get like all those top, okay? Uh, you can also, I believe you can get, get bacon on this if that's your persuasion, but this is excellent. I mean, the basics are, it's a buttered bun, all right, buttered bun, there you go, but buttered bun and a fried chicken breast fried to perfection. Now, you can also get some sauces, any sauce fans in this place, okay? Some sauce fans. So if you like sauces, so you have as an option the Polynesian sauce, okay? Any Polynesian people, okay? A few, just a few, okay? Anybody like, uh, this is my wife's favorite, this is the honey roasted barbecue. Anybody like that? Okay, you should try it sometime. Uh, my wife will thank you, but let's, let's be real, Okay, if you like ruining your chicken sandwich, you could put ketchup on it, okay? Uh, and then the, the original, I mean, you've got to go with the Chick-fil-A sauce, okay? That's where it's all at. Uh, some of you guys are getting a little excited in church. It's, it's great. Uh, so we got all these different toppings, all these different sauces you can put on a chicken sandwich. But here's what I want you to think about. There are some components to the chicken sandwich that are non-negotiable. In other words, if you like this sauce or that sauce, or if you say, no, I don't like mine with lettuce, I don't like mine with tomato, I'll get it, I don't want pickles on it, right? If you ask and you ask to remove certain ingredients, we're still in the same domain. We're still talking about a chicken sandwich. But if you go to Chick-fil-A and you say, I'll have a number one, please, hold the chicken, right? Then we've got problems. Now all of a sudden we're talking about something that's not a chicken sandwich anymore. We're talking about a bun, right? There's something completely different. There are some things so essential to a chicken sandwich that the moment you start removing it, it is no longer that which you started with. Here's what we're doing today. We're looking at Luke chapter 23 and Luke chapter 24, which presents for us something so essential to the Christian faith. In fact, in other places of the Bible, it describes this matter as of first importance. It's so essential to the Christian faith that it's a non-negotiable thing. In fact, everything else about the Christian faith really stems from and flows from this one truth. And if you're uh, a friend here who is maybe skeptical about the Bible or has lots of questions, uh, maybe you were raised in a different faith or you grew up in the church but just kind of have walked away for some time, at some point maybe you just thought, man, I don't know that I believe all this. What's going to be so helpful about our time today is we're going to actually look at the one thing that if you could just disprove this, you can disprove all of Christianity. In fact, if you can just disprove this one thing about the Bible, uh, what we're doing right now is quite in vain. And the Bible itself makes that very claim. And so I want to look at Luke 23 in a moment. And I hope that as we engage our minds and start thinking critically, using our minds, thinking logically about what's being presented here in these 
uh, words, my prayer is that not only would that engage with your mind and cause us to think, but that it would speak to our hearts and show us how there really is hope in this word. And so Luke 23 is where we're going to start. I'm going to start in verse 50, and then uh, we're going to jump into chapter 24 as well. So this is what it says, Luke 23, starting in verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Let me pause there, catch you up. At this point in the story, Jesus has lived, he's preached to crowds, he's done miracles, he's done amazing things. And at this point in the story, in Luke, Jesus has been crucified. The council of religious leaders of the time that Joseph, who we just read about, Joseph from Arimathea, he was a part of this council, but he did not consent to the killing of Jesus. He wasn't on board to Jesus' crucifixion. And so Joseph, this man from Arimathea, he didn't consent to it. He was looking for the kingdom of God. It continues and says this. This man, Joseph, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. That means it's Friday. And the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Taking the spices they prepared, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they, when they went into the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words, and returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven And to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, the disciples that had been following Jesus. But these words seemed to the disciples an idle tale, and they did not believe these women. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Uh, What we just read in summary is the story of that Easter morning when a group of people went to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. And it was early in the morning on a Sunday and this group of women, they went to the tomb and they discovered what they didn't expect. Stone rolled away. The tomb was empty. They saw two angels who announced to them, Jesus is not here. He is alive. He's risen. They go and tell the other disciples who are in hiding out of fear for their lives. They just saw Jesus get crucified. They think they're next. They're hiding and they tell them and the disciples don't believe them. They think it's an idle tale, a legend. And then describes to us how Peter, one of them, goes to the tomb. He stoops to look in and he finds it just as the women described it. He goes home marveling. Now, There are a whole lot of ingredients that make up Christianity. 
In fact, when you read the Bible, the Bible has truth claims about morality, about what's right and what's wrong. The Bible makes claims about our origins and what it was like when God created the world and mankind's place in the world. The Bible teaches all sorts of things that are important, that are critical, that are beautiful. And here's the truth. In a room like this, with a number of people listening right now, there are probably some people who, if you were honest, you would say, you know what, I'm not so sure why the Bible says that. I I can't see how that's best. That doesn't make sense to me why God would want it this way. I'm not so sure I take that. Maybe I'll take this part of the Bible, but I'm not so sure about that part of the Bible. Or maybe even because you came across something in the Bible that you disagreed with or that turned you off, maybe it's for that reason you've kind of stepped away from faith. So what I want to do for a moment is look at this story right here that's at the core and center of Christianity, the most essential claim that Christians have made. Because the reality is, is if what we just read didn't happen, if it's a lie, if Jesus didn't rise up from the dead, then the questions about what the Bible says about morality are really irrelevant. If it's all built on this essential component and it didn't happen, it's all a lie, then your disputes about those things, and I guess it doesn't really matter because the Bible itself hinges on this moment. But if what we just read did happen and someone was dead on Friday and three days later rose from the dead, then that changes everything. And so... I want to use this little illustration here. I have a marker board. Uh, I have just, you know, this secret dream of being a, oh, look at that, professor. Okay, there, there's writing on the other side. So you can see it. Here's what I want to do. I want to start here. This is a place where every one of us can agree. Whether you're someone who grew up in church, whether you're currently a follower of Jesus, you grew up in another faith, you're not sure what you believe, here's a place we can all start and we can all agree, okay? Here's the first claim that I want to present to us and we can all start here. Jesus was a real person. Now here's what I mean by that. I don't want to take this for granted. Uh, There are some people, not necessarily because they've researched it, but in in some ways out of ignorance, believe that Jesus was a mythical person. Uh, uh, some sort of legendary person. Well, we have historical evidence. Jesus was a real person. Jesus, uh, there's extra biblical outside of the Bible. There's sources, historians that talk about Jesus. And so just like you might believe there was such a thing as Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or all these figures of history, Jesus was a real person. He really did live. If you want to do the research yourself, look up Josephus' history. Uh, He was a Jewish historian in the very century that Jesus lived. Josephus wrote, described uh, things about the life of Jesus. Also, we uh, have Tacitus, who's a Roman senator, who the century after the time of Jesus writes and mentions Jesus himself. So we know Jesus was a real person. He really did live. That's not under dispute. Here's what we also know that can't be disputed. Christianity experienced explosive growth in the Roman Empire. I mean, what started as what was perceived really as this small Jewish sect where just a few hundred people started claiming that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he's the son of God and the Messiah. This small group of people started making a massive impact in the Roman Empire. The most powerful empire in the world where emperor after emperor sought to quash the Christian movement. Where you had emperors like Nero and emperors like a Diocletian, who sought to bring an end to Christians, who imprisoned them, who killed some of them. And 
Christianity, in spite of that, experienced tremendous explosive growth in the Roman Empire in spite of persecution, imprisonment, and even martyrdom. And so there were major thriving churches in essentially every major Roman city throughout the empire. And what started as this little tiny movement in Jerusalem cascaded out through the most powerful empire in the world. These truths, history tells us, cannot be disputed. Jesus was a real person and Christianity experienced explosive growth. Here's the question that I want us to ask today. Here's the question I want to lay before you is, what happened here? Right here in this moment. What is it that took place here that would best explain how this can happen? How do you get from this person named Jesus who's real to a movement sparking that claimed that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's the son of God, that the disciples saw an empty tomb and that they saw the risen Jesus? How do you get from here to here? What best fits in this circle to explain that? Now, a number of people have sought to put a number of potential solutions into this. So as an example, some people claim, in fact, when you read the Bible and you read the accounts of Jesus' life, the Gospels, one of the theories that's proposed by the leaders of the time, the religious leaders of the time, was that the disciples stole Jesus' body. So he didn't really rise from the dead, according to this theory. The disciples stole the body and tried to make it seem as though Jesus rose from the dead. Well, the problem with that theory that makes it not hold really much water is that the disciples were terrified. The disciples just saw their master killed. And so this group of fishermen, the the reality of them sneaking past Roman soldiers who are guarding the tomb, rolling away the stone and stealing the body of Jesus— has just absolutely no founding in history. Plus, we're going to get to in a moment why that theory really doesn't hold water. But another theory people have is, well, the women who went to the tomb of Jesus just went to the wrong tomb. Uh, They went to the wrong tomb. They got lost. They went to somebody else's tomb. Well, the problem with that is, well, it would have been in the best interest of the Roman authorities or the Jewish leader to say, hey, guys, come on. This is Joseph's tomb. It's not that tomb over there. That's Johnny's tomb. This is Joseph's tomb. Here's his body. They could have produced the body. Another theory that people have sometimes to fill what happened here is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He survived it and was kind of passed out. He was buried and then on Sunday he came out of the tomb. The problem with that theory is that if you study Roman crucifixion, they were masters at this. They were expert killers by crucifixion. And so if the theory is that on Friday, Jesus was crucified, he was hung on a cross, that he was pierced in his side so that water and blood gushed out to indicate that he was dead. And then he was laid in a tomb and then about 48 hours later, He just decides, all right, I'm going to waltz on out of here, sneaks past the Roman guards, can move somehow a stone that has sealed the grave shut. And he starts appearing to his followers with such fortitude and strength that he's convinced them that he's risen from the dead. I mean, if he did that, that might almost be just as much of a claim of divinity for him to be able to survive something like that. That theory makes no sense at all. So here's what I want to do. I want to lay out for you what we just read, and why we can have confidence that what the Bible just said, what Luke just documented concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus is true. So three reasons I want to give to you for that. Number one is that the accounts of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels invite us to approach them as history. 
They invite us to approach them as history. So there are different, ty- there are different genres of literature. And depending, typically, on how they begin, you're cued into how to approach them. So if I say to you, uh, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, immediately you think, we'll we'll try that one more time, you think, very good, Star Wars, okay? You think Star Wars, and you're alerted, and you're going to perceive what follows as though it's fictional, as though it's a story, as though it's intended to entertain. Now, if I said, uh, you know, once upon a time, then you're thinking fairy tale. There are literary cues that show us how we're to approach a certain piece of literature. I want you to see how Luke begins his gospel. This writer, here's how he begins in Luke chapter one, starting in verse one. Here's the opening lines of this book. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke, we find out from these first few lines that this book was originally written as a response or really a work that was commissioned by someone named or has a pseudonym named Theophilus. Theophilus. And Luke writes this commissioned by Theophilus to go and investigate something he's closely followed since the beginning, he says. He says he examines the evidence of the eyewitnesses who saw these events take place. And he seeks to write an orderly account so that Theophilus, who has been told all of these stories and who has, who has been around this tradition that has been passed around about the life of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, he writes to him this orderly account so that Theophilus, and by extension us, can have an orderly account of the events as they transpired concerning the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So when you read that, Our cue is, okay, this is someone who's talked to eyewitnesses, who's followed this close. This is like an investigative journalist almost, who's seeking to document things as they're laid out and take place. Now, this claim I'm making here is not that, in a moment I'll make this claim, but right now I'm not saying that this proves to us that what we read is historically factual. That's not what what I'm saying. But this point, why it's critical is that the genre that's being introduced to us, what Luke is intending to show us is history. So we should analyze it as such. Here's another thing sometimes people propose about the resurrection. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. What actually happened is his followers later on, decades later, created this story to kind of narrate and capture some of his teaching and kind of put a legend to be able to spread the teachings of Jesus further and farther and faster. They crafted this legend. Well, the problem with that theory is when you read Luke, he's writing and claiming to be authoring history. It's not the kind of story or parable that has a lesson in the end. It's this document that's portraying to us who God is and what he's done through Jesus Christ as he lived among us. And so just to give us a modern day example of this, uh, down here in South Florida, a significant event happened about 30 years ago uh, that many in this room uh, are in this particular area of South Florida because of this event. Uh, Hurricane Andrew famously uh, just completely wrecked uh, Homestead. 
uh, the southern part of Miami and just wreaked havoc in, in some ways unexpectedly. And so this hurricane that took place uh, about 30 years ago or so, if someone was to come and try and piece together an orderly account of the events that took place about 30 years ago during Hurricane Andrew, that person could come to South Florida and literally talk to people who experienced Hurricane Andrew. And they could have conversations with them and say, hey, what was it like on that day? And they'll tell you about how the hurricane looked like it was going this way and then it went this way and then... All of a sudden, they didn't realize it was too late to prepare. And people could tell you stories. Now, if you could piece together, based on eyewitness accounts, the story of what took place during Hurricane Andrew, how much more so would people be able to put together an orderly account of an event so significant, of an event like the resurrection that's so significant, it's not the kind of event you bring up once a year when you're putting shutters up. It's not the kind of event when you're with that old neighbor of yours and you're saying, remember what happened during Andrew? It's the kind of event that you keep talking about every day. It's the kind of event that you gather with people once a week to celebrate, to talk about the fact that Jesus was dead and then rose from the dead, to piece together an orderly account based on these eyewitnesses. This is what Luke is doing and this is how history works. Essentially, everything we know from human history comes from this process of historians looking, examining at the evidence, talking to individuals who are there, examining records. Luke approaches the life of Jesus in this way, inspired by the Spirit of God to write an orderly account of these things as they take place. And as you read this account, there are all sorts of interesting details. We find out about Joseph, where he's from. He's from a Jewish town called Arimathea. It's almost as if Luke's writing and saying, hey, listen, if you don't believe me, go to Arimathea. Ask them about Joseph. Say, hey, do you know Joseph? Ask them about what did he experience? And so these authors wrote in such a way that it invites us to approach them as history. Second, second reason we can have confidence is the, the accounts record parts of the story that actually undercut their ability to persuade readers. The accounts record parts of the story that undercut their ability to persuade readers. What do I mean by that? Well, if these disciples, if someone like Luke set out to write a story where he wanted to get and persuade people to buy his conspiracy theory, let's say this is a lie. It's all made up. And Luke is trying to persuade people to believe his lie. Well, then Luke includes portions of this story that actually make it less believable. He includes details in the story that make it harder for people to believe what he's laying out. I want you to listen to uh, what verse 10 says. Listen closely. Then I want to read this quote to you from a historian. Here's what it says. Verse 10 says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So catch this. It was women who were the first ones to see the empty tomb. These women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joanna, they went to the tomb, they saw it empty. They were the first ones to hear from these angels. Hey, he's not here, he is risen. And then they go on to tell the disciples, here's why this is significant. Listen to how one scholar wrote it, an Oxford scholar, N.T. Wright, professor. Here's what he says concerning this particular detail included. It says, even if we suppose that the gospel writer made up most of his material, and he did so sometime in the late 60s at the earliest, it will not do to have him or anyone else at that stage making up a would-be apologetic legend about an empty tomb and having women be the ones who find it. 
The, the point has been repeated over and over in scholarship, but its full impact has not always been felt. Women were simply not acceptable as legal witnesses. We may regret it, but this is how the Jewish world and most others worked in that time. If they could have invented stories of fine, upstanding, reliable male witnesses being the first at the tomb, they would have done it. So follow the logic. If you're concocting a story and you're trying to dupe people into believing this lie that you're making up, you do not place a group of people, in this case, in that time period, women who weren't acceptable as legal witnesses, whose testimony would have been dismissed, you wouldn't place them at the tomb to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. So the only reason why someone might include such a detail is if that's how the events actually transpired. The only reason to include that is if they were the actually ones who are there and think about the beautiful honor that in a world and in a time period where women in so many ways were devalued, were tossed aside, think about the incredible value and honor that God gave these women, that they could be the first announcers of the good news of Jesus, that God gave to women the privilege of being the first gospel preachers to tell the disciples that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. And it was these women that all the accounts of the Gospels, all of them, they share with us that it was women who were the first that were there. The second detail that would really undercut their persuasiveness if they're trying to make this all up is verse 11. Look what verse 11 says. It says, but these words, after the women told them, these words seemed to the disciples an idle tale. Uh, it says, they did not believe the women. So the disciples, the apostles, they hear these women Tell them the good news. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. And they're like, we don't believe you. And so this does two things for us. Number one, it further confirms the world in which we're operating and we're looking at in this time period. They weren't believed. They didn't buy their, their story. And second, think about this. At the time that Luke is writing this, a few decades after these events that have transpired, at the time that this is being written in history, these disciples who are in this story are the leaders of the Christian movement. They're the leaders of the church. They're scattered throughout the Roman Empire, starting new churches, teaching about Jesus. And in the story that's circulating about the message they're trying to proclaim, they write into the story that initially they didn't believe. In fact, this is a trend when you read the accounts of uh, Jesus' life, when you read the Gospels, something you can't help but escape you can't help uh, but, but come across time and time again is that the disciples in the story constantly get things wrong. The disciples in the story are constantly confused. Jesus has to pull them aside and say, boys, come on, are we doing this again? You guys still don't get it. Times where Jesus has to straight up rebuke them because they're way off base. Over and over again, I mean, Peter, just a, a little bit before this, Peter, the leader of the Christian movement, we have described by Luke how Peter denies Jesus three times because he's afraid of what might happen to him. So let me ask you a question. If you're writing a story and you're leading this movement trying to advance a lie that you want to persuade people to buy into, and it just so happens you write yourself into the story as one of the leaders of the movement, and you see yourself uh, there indirectly in the life of Jesus, you see yourself interact with Jesus 
Why would you write yourself into the story as a blundering fool who constantly gets things wrong? If you want people to buy your message and believe the lie you're seeking to propagate, why write yourself into the story and in the critical moment, the climax of the story, it says, yeah, I didn't believe either. The only reason it includes such a detail is if it's exactly that way in which the events played out. The only reason to include that is if God uses imperfect, broken people to accomplish his purpose. And this is the events as they, un, as they played out. So here's the third reason why we can have confidence. The third reason we can trust in what the Bible says about the resurrection. The disciples claim to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They claim to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. This is so critical. Later in chapter 24, Jesus actually appears to his disciples. So what we read in those first few verses of chapter 24, we read how they saw, Peter saw an empty tomb. At this point, the other disciples, they're still not buying into this, but eventually Jesus flat out appears to them. He shows up. And when they see Jesus initially, they think he's a ghost. Like, is this a spirit? What's happening right now? We can't believe what our eyes are seeing. And Jesus is like, guys, like I'm hungry. Ghosts don't get hungry. Let's have some fish together. And so they share a meal together. You can touch him. I mean, he is very clearly alive bodily. It's not some ghost floating around. He is alive and there with them. And so in this uh, in this exchange they have with him, in fact, we have from the different gospel accounts multiple appearances that Jesus makes to his disciples after his death that cannot be explained as it's some hallucination. And so these appearances, this starts spreading and as Christianity is advancing and experiencing explosive growth, here's the claim. Jesus died, the tomb was empty, he appeared to us, we saw him, we ate with him, and he commissioned us on this mission to proclaim that he had risen from the dead. They claim to be eyewitnesses. Here's why that is so critical. The growth of Christianity, the explosive growth it experienced, did not happen because a set of teachings started spreading and people found it helpful. This is so key. Christianity did not explode onto the scene in the Roman Empire because there were these teachings that started spreading and people heard and that, well, that principle is really helpful for my life. The reason Christianity exploded onto the, sea is be, onto the scene is because these disciples saw something. They witnessed something with their own eyes. They saw it happen. They saw Jesus alive and they testified and told the world that salvation is available through the one who has conquered death. I want to read for you really an interesting perspective commenting on this very uh, thought here that the disciples were eyewitnesses because if Christianity grew based on a set of teachings that started spreading, well, then the disciples could kind of, as they're propagating this, they could kind of, you know, have this somewhat innocent motive to help people with this set of teachings, to help people put principles to play in their life. But if their claim is, no, we were eyewitnesses to this that happened, then that means they could have been lying. They could have been deceiving everyone. Here's how uh, one person summarized this. This is Charles Colson, who uh, famously was involved in the Watergate scandal. He was special counsel to Richard Nixon, uh, the president at the time, and he went to jail for his involvement in Watergate. Here's how he describes these events. He became a Christian, uh, started following Jesus, and here's what he says. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. 
Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. Some of them even died. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. With his unique perspective into the human psyche and what it's like to be in the middle of a lie where multiple players are culpable, he notices there's just no way somebody would have folded. Somebody would have said, you you caught us. Why take another stone? Why take another day in prison when all you have to say is, you caught us? And each of these disciples, some of them went to their deaths, believing and proclaiming that they had seen the risen Jesus. So in summary, here's how that same scholar we read a moment ago, N.T. Wright, he says this to summarize it up. He says, historical argument alone cannot force anyone to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. But historical argument is remarkably good at clearing away the undergrowth behind which skepticisms of various sorts have been hiding. The proposal that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead possesses unrivaled power to explain the historical data at the heart of Christianity. That there is unrivaled power in the explanation that what goes here is that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that the tomb was empty, that he appeared to his followers, and he sent them on a mission. So what do we do with this, this truth that's being presented to us? I want to give us three conclusions as we close. The first one is uh, for uh, my Christian brothers and sisters, for all of us, number one, we can trust our Bibles. You can trust your Bible. Like what we have is accurate. We can trust what this word says, that This isn't just Luke on a journalism chase, but God, by his spirit, inspires Luke to write out and document these events and arrange them in the way that God, the spirit, wants them to be arranged so that we might know God. You can trust your Bible. When you read in the New Testament and you read what Jesus taught about the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible that came before the time of Jesus, Jesus referred to the Old Testament as God's word. And so when someone is dead, and then three days later is like, okay, I'm done with death, I'll be alive now. I listen to what that guy has to say. I take his word for it. And so Jesus teaching us that this is God's word. We can trust our Bible. Second, second for Christian brothers and sisters in this room, number two, superficial faith in a resurrected Lord makes no logical sense. That if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if we have a resurrected Lord, And what we are trusting in is not advice from some sage, uh, not some eightfold path that helps us in some way. If we are trusting in a person that Jesus died and rose from the dead for us, then superficial nominal faith where it's just kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, I celebrate Christmas, or from time to time I go to church. Superficial faith does not correspond to a resurrected Lord doesn't make any logical sense. He demands our full allegiance. He demands for us to say with our entire lives, my finances, my hopes, my dreams, my work, career, my family, marriage, kids, my singleness, whatever, whatever you have in your life, my possessions, all of it, it belongs to you, my risen king. 
I want all of my life to be surrendered to you. The word we use here at West Pines often is the word mathetes, that original Greek word that describes what it means to be an all-in follower of Jesus. Where we don't hold anything back. Where we trust in our risen Savior. And third, for our friends in this room who maybe you came at the invitation of a loved one, maybe you find yourself here today because someone's been hassling you and saying, you gotta come to my church, you gotta come, and you finally gave in to appease them. Maybe you're here just because you saw a road sign and you just kind of found yourself here. What I want to share with you, this third conclusion, may just change the rest of your life. Jesus invites you to experience new life by trusting in him. See, here's the one thing that we learn from looking at this in this way. The one thing that we can't say is that what happened here doesn't really matter for my life. See, because if Jesus did rise from the dead, if this is what best explains what took place, if Jesus was dead and then alive, then this changes everything about your life. That means God has entered into human history in a specific and special way. If Jesus really did come to this earth, God himself lived among us, died on the cross to take our sins, to take the punishment that our sin deserves, and on the third day rise from the dead, then that means something for how you live. That means something for how you view God and view your relationship with him. And so I want to invite you to experience new life in his name by putting your trust in Jesus. There's this beautiful story in John chapter 20 after Jesus rose from the dead where Jesus appears to one of his disciples who doubted. He was uh, out separated from the rest of the group and kind of missed out on everything that was taking place. His name was Thomas. And the other disciples, they saw Jesus alive. He appeared to them, but Thomas happened to be out somewhere else and missed it. Talk about bad timing. He missed it. He could have seen the risen Jesus. He missed it. And he comes back into the room and his boys tell him, hey, listen, Thomas, we just saw Jesus. He's alive. And Thomas says, nah, I don't believe you. He says, unless I put my fingers where the nails went, went through his hands, and unless I see him with my own eyes, I won't believe Time goes by and eventually Jesus appears to Thomas and he says, Thomas, here are my scars. Here I am. I want you to hear how Thomas responds in this moment in John chapter 20. Thomas answers Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I love this. Jesus shows up to Thomas, says, look, here are the scars. Here I am, Thomas. And Thomas doesn't need to touch. He just sees and he believes. And Jesus says, Thomas, you believe because you've seen, but blessed. There's a greater blessing reserved for those who believe and have not seen. Do you realize that that blessing is available to you? To believe in the risen Jesus, to find life in his name, even though you haven't seen with your own eyes. To receive what Jesus has done for you. That his death and resurrection wasn't just some moment in history. It was also a moment that forever changed your life that has intersected with you right now some 2,000 years later.
that Jesus did this for you. And I wanna invite you, if you've never received the forgiveness that Jesus offers, if you've never put your trust in him and received life in his name, I wanna invite you to do that right now. So would you go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes, whether here at our pilot campus, wherever you may be watching, just take a quiet moment before you and God. I wanna invite you to receive life in the name of Jesus. For those who are here and would say, look, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not asking if you attend church. I'm not asking if you were raised a certain way. I'm asking if right now you would say, Jesus is not my life. He is not my Lord. He's not the one I'm pursuing. I haven't received what he's done for me. I'm not living by trusting in him day by day. If that's you, I wanna invite you right now in this moment to turn to him in faith. Just say something like this to God with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Say something like this to God in your heart. Say, God, today I believe and I receive what Jesus has done for me. I put my trust and hope in you. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for me, to pay for my sins. And thank you that he rose from the dead. And that because of his life, I can have life in his name. Father in heaven, thank you so much for every person in this room. Pray you give them courage now to show in a simple way their commitment to you. And so with everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, if you would say, that was me, I put my trust in Jesus for the first time. If that was you, I want to invite you here in a moment to just go ahead and raise your hand as a way of saying, God, that's me. Today I'm, I'm putting my trust in you. I'm receiving life in the name of Jesus. That's you. With everybody's heads bowed, eyes closed, would you just slip your hand up right now? Say, that's me. I put my trust in Jesus. Wonderful. Anybody else, you'd say, that's me. Here at our pilot campus, watching online, that's me. I put my trust in Jesus today. Father, thank you for salvation. Thank you for new life. We give you all our worship and all our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, church, there are people who put their trust in Jesus as their Savior. Can we celebrate that and rejoice? that people made that step of commitment to him. Here's what I want to say to those of you who that was the decision you made. That is the greatest decision you could ever make in your entire life. And we want to celebrate that with you. We want to come alongside you in this journey of following Christ. So go ahead and grab that Get Connected card you got when you walked in or in a chair back in front of you. Do it now. Don't look at what your neighbor is doing. Don't grab your wallet or purse. Grab what you need. Grab that card. Write the, write the spot that says, this is my name. Put your contact and write the box that says, I put my faith in Jesus for the first time. We want to put a Bible in your hands. We want to help you. This is such a wonderful day, the day of salvation. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.